morning, everyone. Good to see you. Glad you could join us today. We, this summer, are going through the uh, major themes and scenes of God's epic story. And one of the requirements of really any epic story is that the main character goes from obscurity to greatness. And this is one of the reasons why we love these kinds of stories. It reflects a hope that we all carry, the hope that our ordinary, seemingly mundane lives might add up into something of greatness at some point. Now, this is not just a fantasy that we harbor inside. It actually reflects a truth deep inside of who we are. The truth is we were created not to be the star of our own story, but to be a part of the greatest of all stories, the one that God is writing through history, the epic story that is found in the pages of the Bible. So we began this series looking at how to live an epic life. It's not by becoming great ourselves, but by taking the pages of our life and folding them into the story of what God is doing in this world. And then we looked at the first and grand opening scene of the story, which is creation. And in creation, we see the goodness of God reflected in the beauty all around us and in the relationship that he offers us and that we want to have with each other. But in the very next scene, sin entered into creation and things began to go downhill. They began to fall apart at that point. Now, everything that occurs in this world reflects the conflict between these two great realities, good and evil. Now, sometimes good prevails and we experience things like love and beauty and joy. And other times, evil prevails and we experience tremendous hate and ugliness and conflict. And the truth is, most days are some kind of a mixture of both. We can go from great moments to bad moments in just a short moment. Now, the conflict between good and evil isn't just something that we observe out there. It's not something that just occurs in the world around us. It also takes place inside our own hearts. We are a mixture of good and evil. We are capable of great nobility and tremendous hostility. And so the question from the point that sin entered into the world has always been this, how can good defeat evil? God's first big move in response to evil was to choose a people. The name of this nation was Israel, which means they struggle with God. And Israel became the canvas on which God displayed his great truths to the entire world. It was to Israel that God revealed his law. The purpose of that was so that the world that's mixed of good and evil might know what truly is good and what is not good. And it was through Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt and then the battles that followed that rescue that God first sketched the outlines of how he planned to finally defeat evil in this world and how we are to battle evil in our own hearts. But over time, the Jews began to believe that they were more than just the canvas of God's great epic story. They began to see themselves as the ones who would defeat evil in this world. All they needed was the political power and the military power to pull off this great feat. And so every leader of the Jews came with this expectation that maybe they might be the one. Maybe this was going to be the leader who would finally bring Israel to her God-given place in the world and usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. So what happened? 
Well, last week we looked at the leadership of Israel in the form of the kings, and their leadership was a huge disappointment. 32 of the 42 kings were themselves evil. There's no way an evil king is going to be able to lead a nation to defeat evil. The people suffered under these evil kings. And in time, Israel herself stopped living by God's words, and they were conquered as a nation and dispersed. But the dream did not die. The prophets of God still told about God's plan to bless the world through the nation of Israel. And as time went on, they filled in more detail about particularly the leader who would usher in the kingdom of God, it became known as. And the title of this leader was Messiah, which in Hebrew means anointed one or king. In Greek, it's translated Christ. The prophets said that this king would come from the line of David, the greatest leader ever in the history of Israel, and that through this line of David, this Messiah would usher in the long-awaited kingdom of God here on earth. The rule of God finally on earth, goodness finally defeating evil. And so the Jews waited, and they waited, and they waited, and centuries went by. And then this happened. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2, we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, what comes to mind when you hear these words? You probably think of Christmas, maybe the nativity scene. That is not what came to the minds of the first people who heard these words. This is what happened in verse 3 when these words were heard. In verse 3, we read this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and not just Herod, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Well, these were fighting words. You see, King Herod was king of the Jews. Actually, his title wasn't king. He took that on himself. Caesar gave Herod jurisdiction over Palestine over Judea. He was in charge from Rome, but he himself began to refer to himself as the king of the Jews. And so to hear the word that someone has been born king of the Jews, and and there was a star in the sky that told these magi that this was the case, well, everyone in Jerusalem know that Herod wasn't going to let this happen. He wasn't going to take this sitting down. Everyone in Jerusalem knew this was going to be a problem. You know, another king always meant another war. That's always been true throughout history. A new king rises to power, and boy, people pay a price. And as feared, this happened. Herod didn't let this claim go. He rounded up every young boy under the age of two in the area of the reported birth and had them put to death. And Scripture says, both the prophecy and the report, that the wailing of the families and the mothers was deafening. But an angel warned Joseph, and Jesus, along with his family, escaped this slaughter to Egypt. And then 30 years later, Jesus stands up in front of a crowd. He's returned back to Palestine. He stands up in front of a crowd, and he says this in Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the first part of what 
Jesus said are the words that every Jew for generations has been waiting to hear. The time is fulfilled. Now, now the kingdom is here. But the last part of what Jesus said was, was confusing to the first century ears. This repent and believe statement didn't seem to go with the kingdom of God is at hand statement. You know, if I go down to the Huntington Beach Pier this afternoon and hold up a sign that says repent and believe, like maybe a few other people are going to do, I don't plan to do this, but if I did, what would people hear if I were to say these words or say these words or put these words on a sign? They would probably hear something like repent means stop doing bad things and believe means, you know, get religion or be religious, whatever that means, be spiritual. But that's not anything close to what the first ears would have heard when they heard Jesus say this. Repent and believe together were the common words of the day that were used to call on a defeated enemy to surrender. You find this often in the record of Roman history by the great Roman historian Josephus. These words were often used to entreat an enemy who had been surrounded and had no hope of escape to lay down their arms and surrender. Repent and believe. Trust us, we're not going to kill you. Repent and believe. It was a practical offer. Put down your weapons and surrender. So it sounded like Jesus was saying two contradictory things. The kingdom of God is at hand, which sounded like it's finally time to conquer the world and bring good to this world by force. So I want you to repent and believe. I want you to surrender. Well, which is it? Is the kingdom at hand or is it time to surrender? Jesus was not the Messiah the Jews had been expecting. And this is just one indication of it. Again and again, they are disappointed by what Jesus does and what Jesus says. They were expecting Jesus to bring a tremendous political system and military power that would not only overthrow Rome, but would conquer the world and bring the law of God into the world. And this is why most rejected him as Messiah. It had simply never occurred to them that God's will could be done on earth without a political system to implement it, without an army to back it up. That had never crossed their minds that that would be possible. Now, the kingdom of God, or sometimes as it's referred to by Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, is like every kingdom in that it has borders and it has citizens. But the way its borders look and what it means to be a citizen is very different from the kingdoms of this world. We're going to look at both of these. First of all, the borders. The border of the kingdom of God is invisible. Every other border of every other kingdom you can find on a map. You can go to a place in the world and see the border crossing, but not this kingdom. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. You're not going to be able to spot it coming over the horizon. Nor will people say, here it is. Look, it's in this city or it's growing over here. There it is. Because why? The kingdom of God is within you. It's in your heart. You, you can't see this. You see, the battleground of evil is not in the halls of political power, but it's inside the human heart. This is 
where the root of evil exists. You can't pass laws to contain it. It will find a way around it. You can't defeat it on the battlefield. It will just pop up in other places and other times. And this is why Jesus came to set up an invisible kingdom, one that will get at the heart of the problem, one that will affect more change than any visible kingdom ever could. And this is why what Jesus said, and particularly what he did, regularly shocked the Jews. No big speeches about throwing off the power of Rome. No moves against the onerous taxation system. I mean, this is the way revolts usually started, is people revolted against taxation. In fact, when, when prodded and asked about these horrible taxes... Jesus says this in Matthew 22, verse 21, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Well, what do you do with that? Everyone was, uh, uh, I don't know, what, what does that mean? But for sure what it does not mean is, so grab a sword and let's go to war. So what was Jesus' strategy? Again and again, he would evade the, the temptation that people brought him to rise in power. So what was his strategy? Well, one of his main strategies is he would befriend sinners. The very tax collectors that everyone hated and the prostitutes that everyone looked down on, Jesus would spend a lot of time with these people. Why? Well, Jesus knew that the problems were not in Rome. They weren't in Jerusalem. They were in your heart and in my heart and in her heart and in his heart. The problems are eternal. Internal. Things like corruption, whether it comes by corrupt taxes or prostitution, are just two of the many symptoms of the problem of sin that resides inside of our hearts. Jesus says people are sick on the inside. This is what he says in Mark 2, verses 16 through 17. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, these are teachers of the law. They, they tell what God's standards are, and so they know these people are not keeping the law. And they can't understand why Jesus is spending so much time with them. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call, call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus says, I'm, I'm here to heal the problem. I'm not here as a policeman or a soldier to throw people in jail for the symptom. I'm here to bring the cure. You know, the sick need internal healing, not external symptom removal. And that's why political solutions can only address the symptoms. New laws can be passed, and may they be moral laws, but they can't change hearts. And that's where the real problem lies. That's where the real problems of this world are. You know, we, we tend to get all worked up about the symptoms of sin in this world rather than the cause of sin. You know, we may watch something on news or we may read an article and it just makes us furious as we see the moral decline of our culture and of this world and its various forms. And we get mad and we get worked up about it and we send this story to our other friends saying, can you believe this is going on? And and we don't recognize that this is, this is just a symptom. Of course this is going to happen. Because what's happening in this 
world and in our culture in particular is for most people, God is less and less of a factor, not really even a thought or a concern. And with that going on, you would expect moral decline. Of course this is going to happen. The patient has a fever. Of course you can expect this. But the, the key point is don't get angry at the fever. I mean, if someone you know has a fever, and they say, you know, I've got a fever of 101, you don't get mad at that. What? You got a fever of 101? What are you doing? No, it's like, oh, you, I'm so sorry. How can I help? How can I help bring healing, which will then bring the fever down? So expecting people to obey God's laws, forcing people to obey God's laws, is like forcing sick people to get out of bed and run. They can't. That not only is that unkind, it, it will not bring about a cure. It will only make things worse. Now, let me be clear. May the laws of this nation be moral. That is one of the responsibilities of government, is to have laws that are moral. But that's never going to cure the problem. Laws will never cure the real problem of evil. That lies in the heart. And the heart can wiggle through laws, and the heart can figure out a way to change the laws. So how, how do we then defeat evil with an invisible kingdom? Well, it's, it lies at the root of what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. The second point. The citizens of the kingdom of God are born again. This is a phrase that Jesus introduced, and it's been widely misunderstood and used kind of as a catchphrase, sometimes to identify someone as being kind of weird. But it's important to understand what Jesus meant. I am the only American citizen in my family. Everyone else are Canadian citizens. Why? Well, because of where we were born. Everyone else in my family, my two brothers and sister and my parents, they were all born in Canada. But I was born 200 miles south of the border in North Dakota. My dad was there with them. I'm, I'm the oldest, and he was still finishing up college before he went back to Canada, and I was born in North Dakota. So I'm an American citizen. They're all Canadian citizens. Where you are born in relationship to borders has an impact on your citizenship. But heaven's border is invisible. So how do you know who is a citizen and who isn't? Well, it involves birth, but a different kind of birth. Citizens of this kingdom, of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, are not just born in this place or that place, they are born again. Jesus introduced this phrase in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus, a religious leader, has approached Jesus. And it's an interesting conversation because Nicodemus begins the conversation not really with a question, but with an observation. Nicodemus says, Jesus, we know that you're from God because we've seen the miracles. And this is really the position most people had is there's no way he could heal that blind man who's been blind from birth or that, that lame person who's never walked a day in his life and he just commands them and they stand up and start walking. There, there's no way he could multiply all of this food and feed thousands out of just a small little lunch. There's no way. There was eyewitnesses that saw all of this. And so people were pretty convinced this, is, this has got Messiah written all over it. Jesus really is from God. And Nicodemus simply 
starts by making that observation. But I love how Jesus always knows what's really on the minds of people. He knows the real question that's being asked. And Nicodemus is kind of beating around the bush here. He's making an observation. It appears from the evidence of the miracles that you're from God, that you are the Messiah. So Nicodemus's real question is this. So if you're the Messiah that we've all been waiting for, when are you going to start doing some kingdom stuff? I mean, when are we going to start, you know, messing with Rome? When are we going to start dealing with this terrible taxation stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm all for you healing the blind and the lame and feeding people, but there's a kingdom that needs to rise and take things over. So when's that going to happen? Listen to the answer that Jesus gives. John 3, 7 through 8. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus says, oh, that's clear. I understand. (laughs) No, he's completely confused, as would you be and I be. So he says, um... Uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm old. Um, I, I, can't, I can't go back and be born again. That, that happened, you know, decades ago. What are you talking about? So Jesus goes on to explain that he's not talking about a physical do-over, a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual do-over, a spiritual birth. What does he mean? Jesus explains a little bit more about this wind analogy that he uses. He uses the wind as an example. And what he's saying in this metaphor is, you know, you can, you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind itself. You can hear the wind when it blows over an object and makes a whistling or rustling sound. You can see and you know it's there when it blows a leaf or if it's really blowing and it blows a tree over you. You knew that the wind did that even though you you didn't see the wind with your eyes. And Jesus is saying, so Nicodemus, there are invisible wind-like forces that are going on in this world that you can't see. The the, the world of the Spirit has got a whole lot more power than you know. It's kind of like the wind. Boy, the wind can tear things up, but you can't see it but you can see what it does. You can see its effect. In a similar way, there are invisible forces that are at work, that are moving us this way and that way, that are behind everything that happens and everything that we do. Now, this doesn't mean we don't make choices. Just like you walking in a stiff wind, you still have a will, you still have power. But we are moved by the patterns of our past, the habits of our past. They have an impact on us. We are impacted by invisible forces of evil. We talked about these when we talked about the battlefield of life. There are invisible forces that are driving some of the things we think and some of the things we feel. Not every thought we have, not every emotion we feel are we the author of. There are invisible forces of evil. We are also moved by our own sinful nature. What that means is sin is now natural to us. All things considered, our life will decline morally. That's just who we are. Now, we don't see these forces, 
But like the wind, we sure feel the effects of them. So when we turn around and we decide, you know what, we want to do what is right, and we try to change, it's at that point we discover that it's more difficult than we thought. Evil is tougher to defeat, even in us, than we thought it was going to be. And the reason is because we have now just turned around and we're going against the wind. One of my favorite things to do for just fun as a hobby is to ride my bike, and I love to ride on the river trails because there's no traffic there, car traffic, that is. So I'll often go on either the San Gabriel Trail, some of the San Ana, but mostly San Gabriel Trail. And because I live at the beach, all my rides start at the beach. And because of the way the winds blow, the sea breeze blows, my rides for the first 10 or 20 miles or however far I'm going um, are with the wind. And so usually most of my rides begin something like this. Huh, well, I'm in better shape than I thought. <laughs> I haven't been on the bike in two weeks and I don't feel any effects. Look at the speed I'm going at. Now, I've done this enough to know that the wind is with me, but still, I just keep thinking, huh, aren't I awesome? <laughs> then I get to the 10-mile mark or the 20-mile, whichever is the half point for me, and I turn around, and at that point, I discovered, oh, no, I'm not in shape at all. I have made a horrible mistake. I've gone too far. And now, if you were to see me the last two or three miles, <laughs> you might call 911. This, this man needs help. Get him back to the beach as soon as you can. And the reason, of course, is that, you know, on the way back, I'm going against the wind. On the way out, I'm going with the wind. We have all experienced this same phenomenon morally. We've all at some point decided to repent of something wrong. We've decided we're going to change something in our marriage. We're going to change something in the way that we respond to, to this or that. We're going to change some habit or, or pattern or addiction that we're struggling with. And with great, tremendous will, we just turn our lives around and we say, now I'm going to do this. And then we discover, oh, I'm weak. This is harder than I thought. And the reason is because now all of these invisible forces are pushing against us. Before, they were helping us along. Now, boy, it's us against the invisible. And we struggle. But what Jesus is saying here is if we decide to be born again, if we decide to join his kingdom and follow him, not only do we find the forgiveness of a brand new life, the innocence of a brand new life, but we're given a new wind, he says. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. That's God himself taking residence in us. This is not an impersonal wind or force. This is the actual presence of God inside of us to help push against the patterns of our past, against our sinful nature, against the invisible forces of evil. There's a new push now that's helping us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're on an electric bike and we just take our hands off the wheel and stop pedaling and whoosh. No, it's a power-assisted thing. You know, there's more and more of these power-assisted electric bikes on the trails, and every time they pass me, I just want to scream out, not fair! <laughs> There's some of us who still really ride bikes. But in a sense, this is what this is saying, is, is you get a power pack. You get some help. Now, you still have to pedal. 
But there's help now. There's help to push against the patterns of our past. This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, in response to, when's the kingdom coming? Jesus says, you must be born again. This is how it's going to advance. One person after another, like you, Nicodemus, is going to decide they need help. They need a do-over. And they're going to decide to follow me, the king. And they're going to get forgiveness, both now and into the future. And they're going to get the Holy Spirit inside, a new wind, to help move them forward. Because sin is just too powerful. Evil is just too strong. So what does this mean in practical terms, then? Well, it's very similar to what happens with physical birth. This is why Jesus uses these images, the wind image and the birth image. Now, our grandson, his name is Richard, was born seven weeks ago. Here's a picture of Richard uh, yesterday. I agree. Very cute. Uh, He, yeah, okay, you want to clap? All right, I know. I'm going to hear it from the other grandparents. How come we don't get our grandkids up there? So if you want to stand up here and do this, you can show your kids some, but... I'm up here, so you got to watch my grandson. Now, he and his parents uh, are living, and his, and his sisters are living with us in our house while his parents are looking for an apartment in the area. And it's been a, a great experience, but it's been a reminder to me of what it's like to have little ones at home. I, it's been almost 30 years, I'd forgotten a lot. I'd forgotten how much changes with new birth when a little one comes home. I think, from my observation now, the biggest single change is your schedule. I mean, it's just blown out of the water at first. I mean, you're scrambling for sleep and food and sanity for a while. Why? Why is the schedule such a challenge? Well, the new life needs to be fed more than once a month or once a week, again and again and again. Now, it's great being a grandparent because I'm able to say, good luck with all that tonight. I'm going into my bedroom, turning on the fan. I won't hear a thing. (laughs) But if you're responsible for a new life, it's got to be fed. They have to be fed. And it's the same with being born again. It's not just a moment. It is a moment, but it's the beginning of a new life. And the new life must be fed if it's going to grow. And so this very same image is used later in the New Testament when we read this, 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, what it's saying, Jesus didn't die on the cross so the Holy Spirit could live in you just so you could get a little taste of the goodness God intends to bring you. A little emotional uplift, a little help occasionally. No, if you decide to bow the knee of your heart to Jesus and follow him as king, he intends to change you completely. And that will be the project for the rest of your life. His purpose is to change you totally. And that's not going to occur. You're not going to grow if you don't eat. Eat what? God's word. Now, Jesus made this very clear when he was fasting in the desert and was tempted by Satan to break his fast and turn some stones into bread. Satan basically was saying, look now, Jesus, you have a body. And like everyone with a body, 
I want you to agree, like they all do, that the physical realities that you can see are more important than the spiritual realities, that the praying and fasting, all that stuff you're doing now. You're, you're hungry. This is day 40. You've got a real body. Stop this praying stuff and take care of your hunger. And Jesus says this in response. He actually quotes a statement that was made in the Old Testament. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, he acknowledges, yeah, I have a body, and pretty soon here I am going to eat, but not till I'm done. Not till I'm done nourishing my soul on the words of God and praying to my Father. How do you eat God's words? Well, it's very similar to the way you eat food. You swallow it, and then you digest it. The passage that was talking about Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, it first talks about the milk portion of God's Word and then the solid food portion. The milk portion is just the stuff, the truth, the basic truth that you just either accept or don't accept. You swallow it or you don't swallow it. It's not going to take a lot of chewing to figure out. Either you accept this or you don't. If you swallow it, then it can begin to nourish you. But before long, you have to move on to the the majority of God's Word, which it's going to require some chewing. It's going to require some effort. You're going to have to break it down into pieces of thought and try to figure out, what does this mean? And then you're going to have to digest it. Digesting occurs when you do what God's Word says. It's kind of like what happens with food. You know, you swallow or you chew and swallow, and then the enzymes break it down. It goes in the nutrients, and it does its work going to your body and giving you strength and growing your muscles and health, bringing health to your body. It's the same thing that happens with God's Word. You break it down, you understand it, but it really begins to nourish you. Not when it's in your stomach, but when it's made its way into your body, when it's impacting what you're actually doing. Now, with physical food, you don't, digesting isn't a, a second thought. You don't have to think, okay, I've swallowed it, now digest, digest. It just happens. But with God's Word... It is an effort. That's why it says in that passage in 1 Peter, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. It's a command. The little ones, when they're born, it's not, they just crave milk. They're hungry and they cry and so they're fed. But with the milk of God's word and the solid food of God's word, you're not going to feel the hunger pains. You're going to have to make the decision to eat. I think the hardest part with a newborn is getting them on a feeding schedule. And I think it's the exact same thing with Christians. You know, when it comes to food, we, uh, we, we grow up not to graze like cattle who are constantly eating throughout the day. No, we eat, and then we do stuff, and then we eat again, and then we do stuff, you know, usually three times a day. We're not like bears who gorge ourselves for months so that we can hibernate for months. No, growing, growing up for us involves a daily eating plan. You got to get a little one from just kind of eating all the time or as often as they can to a plan. And the same thing needs to be true with God's Word if we're going to grow. We need a schedule. And for me, I, I've been a pastor here for a little over 27 years, and I would, I would say this in my experience. This is the single largest reason why Christians do not grow. 
is they either have never developed an eating schedule, a plan to digest, to learn and digest God's word, or they've abandoned it now for some time. Because there's just no getting around this. It's just like physically. You know, I'm 57. I'm not done with eating. I'm going to be eating until the day I die. You don't outgrow the need for God's word. You, you just need it. And, and th- when there's periods of time where I'm not really eating God's word, boy, I, I begin to fade on the inside. But we let so many other things crowd out the nourishment of God's word. And that's, in my experience, that's the number one reason why people struggle and don't grow. It's because they've just never put a schedule together or they're not doing it now. Because if you just ingest God's word when you feel like it, you're just not going to grow. Now, there's lots of plans. You just need to pick one. doesn't matter what the plan is. Just pick one and use it. It's kind of like getting your newborn on a plan. You know, there's so many ideas out there about how to get your little one on an eating plan. And I think some are better than others. And some people get all upset about their plan and the other plan. You know, the, the point is, by the time they get to college, it would be good for them to be eating three meals a day. So if, and if you can get that done before grade school, that would really be helpful. So pick a plan and go for it. Same thing with God's Word. Just pick something and begin to do it. If it doesn't work, then adjust it. The point, important thing is we've got to be nourishing ourselves. On the last week of Jesus' life, the, the two radically different ideas of the kingdom of God collided. The one that the Jews had grown up thinking that it meant and the one that Jesus had taught that it meant. They came to a head. The week began with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And once again, it looked like he might be the king that they had been expecting because he was fulfilling the prophecy of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so the crowds gathered, they, they hailed him as the new king. But once again, the, there's just something off in the scene. It's, it's just different than what the Jews had expected. If you look closely, you see something that doesn't fit. Here's what we read in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This Messiah, this King, is crying. As he, enters the king, as he enters the city of Jerusalem on this donkey. Why? He's crying because they just don't get it. He spent the last three years demonstrating personally, teaching repeatedly about what the kingdom of God really is, and they won't have it. And he can see the destruction that their stubbornness is going to bring on them. He sees the future. And on that day... The heart of Jesus just broke for the people of Israel, the canvas. Well, they had finally disappointed 
Jesus had finally disappointed these people one last time. And in that week, the crowd turns against him, and four days later, he is crucified. And so after centuries of Jewish people watching innocent animals die to role-play how their sin would one day be paid for, they gather around a cross, and they watch the innocent blood of God's eternal Son shed in their place as the one true and final sacrifice. This is where the story has been going all along. This is the pinnacle. But you know, it, it still didn't click, even for his disciples. It didn't make sense until three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And for most Jews, it never made sense. It never clicked. And it turns out that Jesus had reason to cry. He spoke these words 30 years, probably about 35 years before they happened. And these words were written down at least 10 to 20 years before the events happened. About three decades after Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on that week, the Jews did revolt against Rome. And the Roman emperor Nero sent an army. He'd had enough. And he laid waste to Israel for three years. And then he laid siege to Jerusalem. And the, the ramp that Jesus talked about was built. The siege works were constructed. And after months of starving the inhabitants near to death, the Roman legion broke into the city and killed people by the tens of thousands in 70 A.D. They burned everything, and they destroyed the temple so that not one stone was left on top of another. This was the order they were given. Don't leave one stone on top. Not exactly what Jesus had prophesied. Now, of the whole massive complex, there's only one frail wall that remains today. It's not actually a wall of the temple. It was the retaining wall on the outside of the temple site. It's all that remains. It's now known as the Wailing Wall. And I've been there myself to hear the cries of God's people, crying for the Messiah to come. It continues to this day as the Jews wait for their Messiah to come. But you know, the Wailing Wall, even though it is a place of tremendous conflict, even this week there's been tremendous conflict there. This is not the only place where tears are shed around the world. Tears are shed throughout this world and in this community as evil continues. And the advance of God's kingdom is the only hope this world has. There is no political system. There is no war that could ever be won that would defeat evil. There are better or, or worse political systems, but none of them is ever going to get at the human heart. Only the kingdom of God can do that. Only Jesus has the power to forgive. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to, to begin to bring about change that we can't power on our own, no matter how much we want to change. So the most important question of the story, and therefore of all of history, and of your life and my life, is this question. Is Jesus your king?
everything will come down to this question. Is Jesus just a figure of history, or is he your king? Is he the one you have bowed the knee to and now follow into the future? If he is not your king, I implore you and I invite you to join the true kingdom of God. The only kingdom that's founded on the blood of the king, not the conquered. Every other kingdom is built on the foundation of the blood of other people. This one's built on the blood of the the king, Jesus. This is a kingdom focused on defeating evil at its very source inside the human heart. A kingdom not of force, but of love, because love is the only thing that can weave inside a heart. You try to force someone and the walls of the heart go up. This is not a kingdom of force, but of love. This is not a kingdom of laws. There are laws, but that's not at the core of the kingdom. Laws that could never be fully kept. This is a kingdom of God's grace and forgiveness that must be received. And the borders of this kingdom are indeed invisible because it affects the heart. But like all matters of the heart, it does show up in visible ways. And one of the first ways it shows up is in baptism. This is what Jesus told those who decide to follow him. He said, I want you to be baptized in the name of the Father who planned this, the Son, me, who paid for this, and the Holy Spirit who is going to power this. I want you to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, baptism isn't the border. You don't cross the border the moment you're baptized. No, that's a decision of your heart. Only you can make that decision. Baptism is just a public statement that says, I'm in. I'm following Jesus as my king. Now, if you have decided to join God's kingdom, but you've never been baptized, as Jesus said, then I invite you to do that. We've got our next baptism. It's actually at the ocean. We do this in the summer. We're going to do it in just a few weeks on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, August 13th. So I would encourage you, well, well, let's go ahead. Everyone take out your connection card. I just want you to see this on the back of the connection card. The next steps in the top left-hand corner, two options. Number one, I'm deciding to be born again. So if you've already made this decision, don't check this box. But if this is a new decision for you or you're unclear about what it means or whether you've made this decision, I would, I would ask you to check this box so that we can contact you and and help you with that decision, or at least know that you've made that decision. Secondly, if you've not been baptized of your own volition, your own decision, then you can check that second box. I would like to get baptized on August 13th. So check one of those two if that applies, and then drop this in the connection or the, the offering buckets as they pass. The story is not over. It's reached its pinnacle but it's far from over. We have two more important themes to consider. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the church. This is what the kingdom of God looks like now. This is how the kingdom advances in communities like this and in places all around the world. And then the second theme in two Sundays from now is going to be eternity. This is how the final chapter of God's story is going to end and how to prepare for that end. I hope you can join us. Let's pray.
Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture tells us that when you return visibly, that every knee will bow at the sight of you and that every tongue will confess that you are, in fact, King, that you are the Lord. But by then, it will be too late to join your kingdom, too late to state allegiance because the victory's already been won. History is being wrapped up. And so now is our only chance to decide whether you will, in fact, be our king. And I pray for those in this room who have yet to decide that, that you would bring them to that decision. If there's questions that need to be answered, I pray that you'd help them move those questions to the front burner so that they can address them. And then, Father, we pray that you would, you would help us as a church advance your kingdom in this community, a community that is, for the most part, enamored and stone-blind by all of the stuff in this world and largely ignorant of, of the matters of the heart and of the spirit. God, we pray that your mercy would pour out in this community, that your kingdom would advance through us, that as we love those you put in our path, as we serve them, as we speak up when opportunities are presented, that you would advance change in the heart of pe hearts of people in this community. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and for your help to change us. Without you, our efforts amount to nothing. We thank you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.